Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. My guest today is John Schwaller, who has written the book The 15 Months, which I'm holding up right here, which is an excellent account on the Aztec religion, which I am going to talk about today. I'm sorry, again, I want to correct myself. I did say fifth, did I say fifth month? I meant to say 15th month. There's another book called The Fifth Son, and I did, sorry for confusing that in the title, but The 15 Month is a book about Aztec religion. And, and I want to begin with, there's a perfectly fine reason why you called it the 15th month. So let's get into that first. Why did, why did you chose to call the book the 15th month? Well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to be here to talk, talk with you. Uh, the 15th month was a decision that the publishers and I made because it has a certain shock value. Uh, we think about uh, the European calendar having 12 months. And so when somebody gives a number that's larger than 12, it, it takes us aback. Uh, the Mexica, the folks who we now know as the Aztecs, uh, shared a calendar with many other native peoples of what is now Mexico. Uh, in It was a solar calendar, but rather than having 12 months of more or less 30 days, uh, as we do uh, in the European system, they had 18 months of 20 days and then an additional week of five days that were not ascribed to any particular month, uh, but were dedicated to certain rituals having to do with the solar calendar. And so very quickly, you realize that, no, there aren't 12, there are 18 months uh, and each of them is 20 days. The other major difference is that a week uh, was five days long, so there were still four weeks in each month. Uh, and so the periodicity of celebrations, of market days, uh, of all of the activities that we associate with with normal daily life were on a five-day schedule rather than on a seven-day schedule. Hmm. So let's begin with some sources, because as you mentioned in the book, there is mostly Christian sources that we use. And I we talked a little bit about this before the recording. But as as you know, they were they did have somewhat literacy, but not to the extent that we had in the European world. But you know, I want to talk about the Christian sources mainly, as you those are the main sources you use for your book. But can you really really rely on the on the Christian sources? Are are how much of the source in Christian that you use from the Christian world is propaganda that they want to show, you know, that the Christ- Christianity is the true true religion and that how bar- bar- barbarians the Aztecs were, if you put it that way. Well, uh, those of us who work in the field uh, find ourselves in a situation where obviously it's something that happened 500 years ago 
And so we have to use whatever documentation we happen to have. As it turns out, the largest volume of information was written down by European Europeans, individuals. And by and large, these men were members of Christian religious orders. Uh, they tended to be Franciscans. Uh, one, uh, Father Diego Duran, uh, was a Dominican. And so, yes, you're absolutely correct. We have to be extremely cautious how we use these materials because we need to make certain that we do not carry the taint of Christianity, as it were, uh, into our understanding of the native peoples of what is now Mexico. Uh, for that reason, it's important to to understand Spanish Christianity of the time. And I'm kind of lucky because I've already written several books on the Catholic Church uh, in 16th century Mexico. So for 20, some 30 years, I was immersed in in Christian thinking of the period and the way the church was organized. So it it gave me a little bit of an additional insight into possible Christian references when the friars who were writing down their impressions of the native religion uh, were getting off track uh, and perhaps comparing it to Christianity or uh, introducing information that was not really part of the native religion. So yes, we we have to be very careful. It is a fairly fine line that we walk, uh, but I think most of us who work in the period are fairly confident uh, that we do have a good understanding of the native religion. Part of it is also what a historian does normally, and that's that uh, we triangulate. We we try not to base all of our work on a single source. Uh, and certainly on my book, The 15th Month, where, you know, I was blessed by the fact that we have four or five fairly high quality sources uh, that talk about the rituals uh, and the ceremonies of this particular month of the Mexica calendar. So we aren't relying completely on Bernardino de Sahagún, although he is a major figure and provides the bulk of the information that I use. But we also have Diego Duran. We also have uh, Toribia de Mendavente, who is known as Motolinia, and a few other smaller sources. So we, we triangulate wherever we possibly can, which is to corroborate information with other sources. Hmm. Well, let's begin with the Aztec mythology. Um... Medun and, and one of the most infamous gods of the Aztec world, which is Hurtsley Portley, and there are a few others, but he is going to be our main guy, so, so to speak. So let's talk about how the birth of Aztec mythology and how Hurtsley Portley became to be one of the most infamous gods in the Aztec religion. Right. Uh, Huitzilopochtli, uh, which uh, translated into English means hummingbird on the left. Uh, was the national god of the Mexica. Uh, he was adopted by them, and he adopted them uh, during the Mexica migration, which occurred over some 200 years uh, when they left their ancestral homeland in what is now the northwest of Mexico uh, and slowly migrated into the central, more well-watered part of the country. 
and it's during that migration that they adopt Huitzilopochtli, or depending upon how you want to look at it, Huitzilopochtli adopts the Mexica uh, in an intimate relationship. Uh, in that sense, uh, it, to use a Christian analogy, it is not unlike uh, Yahweh and his relationship to the Jewish people. It, it's a very intimate and close relationship. Uh, and many of the traditional sources describe this uh, conversation, if you will, between Huitzilopochtli and the Mexica uh, as they migrate into the central part of the New World. Uh, he was only one of several gods in the Mexica panoply. Uh, Mexica were individuals who spoke the language Nahuatl, and most of the people who ended up living in central Mexico also spoke Nahuatl, but came from slightly different uh, historical traditions. There are some non-Nahuatl speakers in what is now the Valley of Mexico, the Central Basin, uh, from Otomangayan language speakers, Otomi. But by and large, most folks spoke Nahuatl. Uh, and so when we talk about the various different nations, all of whom who spoke Nahuatl, we call them the Nahuatl because they have a common language. They have a common calendar. They have a common panoply of gods. Some of them are more important some places and others are more important in other places. But certainly for the Mexica, there was a, a close relationship with Huitzilopochtli. Many of the individuals who were already in the central basin of Mexico had Tezcatlipoca as their principal deity. Uh, Tezcatlipoca means uh, the smoking mirror. Uh, he was also a militaristic uh, and trickster god, uh, a, a, an omnipotent deity. And in many of the creations, so, so, so he was so, sorry for interrupting, Daniel, but mm -hmm. it was kind of like Loki in a sense from Norse mythology, <laughs> or yeah, not not trying to to, to draw too many uh, European mm -hmm. comparisons. But there is one could see that he and Loki are perhaps cut from the same cloth. Uh, there's also a tradition in the American in 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 the Southwest of the United States uh, of a trickster god. Uh, and so this this very much fits uh, the the personality of Tezcatlipoca. He also is an oracle, uh, and he also is one of a, a supreme deity. Uh, some of the creation myths uh, have give him four different as aspects. Uh, one for water, one for fire, one for air, uh, and controlling more uh, of the natural world. So in general, uh, at least what I have found in my book was that there were large numbers of nations uh, who had Tezcatlipoca as a, as a central deity in their panoply of gods, uh, whereas the Mexica had Huitzilopochtli as the central deity in, in their panoply. Hmm. The and, and I'm sorry for getting some. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm probably gonna say this name wrong. But they also did have a fire god, which was Siuntitlutli. I'm sorry if I say it. It's wrong and probably sounds horrible. But in 
let's talk about Siotekutli yeah. as well. Yeah, Siotekutli, uh, which means fire god or the fire lord. It can also mean the green lord. He was a an important deity, but but by no means generally considered uh, central. Uh, he's generally depicted as an old man with a brazier in his lap. Uh, he's got wrinkled skin and missing teeth. Uh, he was an important deity, but but more of a more of a household and common deity. Uh, the other principal deities included the the sun, the solar disk itself, uh, Tonatiu, uh, who sometimes is represented as uh, Huitzilopochtli. Uh, sometimes uh, Tezcatlipoca is associated with the movement of the solar disk. The other very, very, very important deity is Tlaloc, uh, who is an earth god uh, who is associated with rain. Uh, and in fact, in downtown Tenochtitlan, which was the capital of the Mexica, the Great Pyramid was dedicated to two deities, uh, to Huitzilopochtli on one side uh, and Tlaloc on the other. So they were they were in many ways seen as being equally important uh, in the Mexica panoply. Um, I'm sorry, I know you want to try those as much as possible. I can't help myself. But it's, was there, to compare with the Greek mythology, was the story is like, you know, in, with the Greek gods, how they came to be, how they created the earth, were there that kind of stories in the in the Mexica world as well? There were some, but they were very, very, very different. Uh, fortunately, in in this instance, we we don't see uh, that you know Jupiter was associated with Tezcatlipoca, and so they just had all of the same stories. Uh, no, the the stories are really quite different and quite uh, locally associated with with the Mexica and with other Nahuatl speaking peoples. Uh, of central Mexico. Uh, there there are several creation myths. Uh, the one that I particularly like uh, is one which the Mexica used uh, in order to explain the creation of the current uh, era of humanity. Uh, according to the Mexica, humanity have gone through four different uh, creations uh, the gods destroyed the world at the end of each of the four creations, uh, which is why my colleague Camilla Townsend has her book, The Fifth Sun, uh, because we are in the fifth sun, we are in the fifth creation. Uh, and that creation occurred at Teotihuacan, which is the large group of pyramids located to the north-northeast of Mexico City. Uh, and there the gods assembled, when there was no day, there was no night, uh, and the gods resolved to create the world. Uh, and so they made a huge bonfire, and they talked. They they asked two different gods to immolate themselves in the bonfire in order to uh, go through an apotheosis to become uh, the solar disk. Uh, one of them, uh, a fine and lovely noble. Uh, was happy to do so. And so he leaped into the fire and was transformed into the solar disk. The other god, Tecusis Tecat, uh, who is called the pimply-faced god, who was ugly and awful and 
badly dressed, finally was encouraged to jump into the fire and immolated himself. And he also became the solar disk. Uh, but unfortunately, with two sons, uh, there was no time for rest. Uh, and so one of the gods, Quetzalcoatl, was tasked with catching uh, an animal in order to throw it up into the heavens to darken one of the discs. Uh, and so Quetzalcoatl caught a rabbit and he threw it up into the sky uh, and it landed on the face of the pimply god of Tecat. And it became the moon. Uh, the light was diminished. Uh, and so when you look up at the moon, uh, what you see is a rabbit sitting, looking off to the right. So that's one of the creation myths that I, I particularly like. Hmm. There's one another myth that I want to go into before we go into the Aztec Mexico people themselves. And that is, of course, the creation of Huxley and how he became yes. a god, which I feel like we should go into as well. Right. The birth of Huitzilopochtli really is central to uh, the study that I had of the 15th month. Uh, according to the story, his mother, Coatlicue, uh, 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 her uh, snakes, her skirt, uh, was sweeping uh, atop the main temple to the gods, uh, and she was cleaning uh, and as she did, uh, a a puff of eagle down floated onto the temple. Uh, and so she put it into her pocket uh, in order to keep the temple clean. The eagle down turned into a child uh, and she recognized that she was pregnant uh, and she was pregnant with, with Huitzilopochtli. Of course, her other children, uh, the, the the main child was Koyoshauki, uh, which we can translate as Jingle Jingle Bells, Her Cheeks. Uh, was a, a name. Yes, was, was infuriated that her mother was pregnant, essentially out of weglock, uh, and swore to, to kill the child. Uh, and she enlisted her, her brothers, who are known as the 400 Southerners, the Tsenzonwitznawa, uh, to kill uh, the baby inside of Coatlique. Uh, however, Huitzilopochtli, the baby, uh, understood what was going to happen. And so he emerged fully armed uh, and battled his sister and brothers. Uh, he killed his sister. He chopped her head arms and legs off and threw her from the temple uh, and he defeated his brothers the 400 southerners uh, and routed them and came to reign supreme now before we go into the sacrifices of course I want to talk about because as we talked a little bit about the mythology right now so I want to talk about the priesthood because of course priests were a very important part of the Mexican tradition and, but I want to talk about the education to becoming a priest and who could become a priest in the Mexico for the Mexico people was it the, one of the toughest jobs to get or how easy was it to become a priest in the Mexico world? Well, generally speaking, the 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 priesthood was limited to individuals of from the upper reaches uh, of society. 
uh, and they were they went off to uh, uh, a special priestly school uh, from about the you know early teens, uh, and and they studied the the priestly rituals. They studied the the calendar. Uh, they studied the almanacs. And became highly sophisticated scientists uh, in the sense of being able to predict natural phenomena, uh, sunrises, sunsets, equinox, uh, uh, solstices, uh, eclipses, uh, and the movement of the major and and lesser stars. So it was a, it was a rigorous and and a highly uh, I, I think you'd have to call it scientific training. Uh, they were they were generally cloistered off from the rest of society uh, and interacted during uh, the major rituals and celebrations. Hmm. So you something that you mentioned in the very start of the of the as pre of the book is that there was a ritual with running. So so now got you kind of fascinated with with writing the book in the first place, I believe. So what was the deal with the running and the priest kind of marathon in a sense? Right. Right. Well, the the way I got interested in the 15th month uh, was actually due to uh, a, a dear friend of mine, Susan Schroeder, who had written uh, an article about uh, the Aztec Valentine. Uh, and, and that was a story uh, from Aztec history, from Mexica history, uh, wherein uh, the the emperor Huitzilihuit uh, had gone down to Cuernavaca, Cuernavaca, uh, in order to find a princess to marry. Uh, the princess was supposed to be uh, beautiful and wonderful. Unfortunately, her father, the, the lord of Kualnawak, was a powerful wizard, and he kept her isolated and, and away from the rest of society. And so Huitzilihuit made an arrow, and he put a, a jade bead in it, uh, and he shot the arrow through the sky and it landed in the compound of the young maiden uh, and broke apart and she saw the jade bead and tested it with her teeth in order to make certain it really was jade because jade's a very hard stone and accidentally swallowed it and she became pregnant uh, with Motel Ktsalma Ilwikamina who was the older of the two uh, Mexica emperors known as Montezuma. Uh, and his his sobriquet, his 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 second name, Ilwikamina, means uh sky arrow. So he he carried some of, of that with with him. Anyhow, Susan wrote a delightful article talking about the role of women and society and the structure of society based on this event. Uh, and as I was reading uh, about the various celebrations uh, in the Mexica year, uh, I was taken with the celebrations surrounding uh, the raising of banners, Panquetzalistli, uh, which is the 15th of the 18th, 18 months. Because the central uh, ritual there uh, is a priest who takes an amaranth doe image of the god Huitzilopochtli, and then he runs a, a marathon. It's uh, actually about 20, I, I, I roughly calculated it to about 22 or 23 miles. It's a little bit shorter than a marathon. Uh, from the main temple in downtown Tenochtitlan uh, to the ritual ball court, uh, up to Tlatelolco, uh, then over west to near Azcapotzalco, 
running along the shore to uh, uh, the heights of Chapultepec, then down to Coimacan, and then up the central causeway back into Tenochtitlan. Uh, and it was it was the central ritual. And I was thinking to myself, what does this tell us? Uh, and after having given a paper at uh, a specialized conference, uh, it was it was almost uncanny. Uh, a couple of people asked me questions and all of a sudden I had a book outlined in my head. Uh, and I and I and I wrote it down, and it became the fifteenth month. So I, I like to say that this book chose me rather than me choosing the choosing the book. Uh, it it just kind of appeared, uh, not unlike Venus, uh, fully fully armed uh, out of the head of Zeus. Mm. So of course, or, or, or Huitzilopochtli fully armed mm-hmm. out, out of. Uh, <laughs> So, of course, sacrifice is a big deal in the Mexican world. And I, I, I believe I read somewhere, I don't remember where, but I do think the number of total sacrifices is 80,000. Is that correct? Is that ever exaggerated? Or is do we kind of take this number for granted? Is it really 80,000 sacrificials that we can count of? Or is it more? Or what's, yeah. what's, do we have a certain number? Okay, uh, let me... Let me... Let me work on this a little bit. We are undergoing, needless to say, uh, a reevaluation uh, of so many things uh, in in Mexica life, in Aztec life, uh, and one of them that were we have been focusing on, and and there hasn't been a lot of work published yet, but but I anticipate in the next few years there will, and that is the role of what uh, Europeans have come to know as sacrifice. Uh, it is an important issue to tackle because just as you suggested at the beginning of our conversation, much of what we know about the Mexica and other native peoples of what is now Mexico is colored by by the friars who came uh, to Christianize them. And increasingly, those of us who work in the field uh, are stepping back and and looking at what the friars called sacrifice and and beginning to associate it slightly differently than what the friars did mm-hmm. uh, the mechanics are essentially still the same yes people were taken on top of pyramids uh, and their hearts were extracted and offered to the deity. Uh, a, a, a radical cardiectomy is what one of my colleagues has called it. What we're beginning to move away from is the idea that these individuals are being sacrificed. While, yes, they are being killed, we're we're looking more closely at who those individuals are. Uh, And I certainly have begun this conversation in my book Mm -hmm. where we see that the individuals who are being executed are outsiders. They are unequivocally uh, soldiers from opposing nations, 
and in some instances they are slaves from other nations uh, who for one reason or another are being punished by the state. And so what we're trying to do is to put some of this into a little bit larger context uh, of human confrontation of the other, of humans dealing with political issues using the ultimate action, which is execution. And historically, particularly Europeans, have said, oh, how awful, you know, their hearts were ripped out and all this blood. Well, yes, this is very true. Uh, I don't think we would want this to happen to anyone near and dear to us or even far and not dear to us. But at exactly the same time, and perhaps for two or three hundred centuries later in Europe, we have public beheadings. We have individuals who are uh, ritually disemboweled. We have burned at the stakes. Burned at the stake. We have uh, tied to horses and ripped apart mm-hmm. while they are still alive. We have a rather significant number of brutal, gruesome, grisly, bloody uh, 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 executions. And not uh, a repeat of creative torture. Exactly. At, at the same time. So what those of us who study the Mexica are starting to do is say, OK, let, let's calm down. Let's think of these more as executions to serve a religious purpose, but as executions, individuals who have run counter to the rules of society. And that particular society has chosen to execute them. Not unlike the Inquisition burning people, not unlike uh, the Scottish leaders being beheaded and disemboweled by by British Mm -hmm. troops, not unlike... Uh, any other inhumanity uh, that man has meted on to his fellow. And if, so, you, if, if I may interrupt you again, I, I want to add as well that in, in the Tower of London, even in the 19th century, I believe, they played mm-hmm. cricket with the heads of the people they were hanging after they were hung. So if you want to talk about barbarity, just look at the Tower of London, how they treated the dead after they were hanged in, in yes. the 19th century, as late as it's just 300 years ago. Yes, well, and we have Madame la Guillotine in the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, witches being burned in the 18th and 19th century. So, yeah, we are not we are not that far removed uh, as uh, civilized Europeans uh, from the same barbarity. Uh, again, this is not to apologize for the Mexica. This is not to make light of the fact that they were executing humans. But I think we as as individuals from a a Western tradition need to step back and take a deep breath uh, and look more profoundly at what's going on. And again, we as as you rightly pointed out in our very first words, we need to look and see what the the observers uh, from the Spanish side in the 16th century were implying in in their in their descriptions to us. 
Now, you mentioned, and I want to talk a little bit about this, you mentioned that most people are outsiders, and something you write about in the book as well is, of course, wars, which wasn't uncommon in the Aster, in Mexico world as well. So, and you mentioned that most sacrifices were, of course, a lot of them were POWs, and there were not just ter- war for ter- territorial gains necessarily, but there were also wars to get prisoners to sacrifice, I'm, I'm sorry for calling it again, sacrificial reasons yeah. that they were having racial wars against other tribes. Yes. We, we Again, this is an area of, 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 of fruitful research. Uh, there was a type of stylized warfare, which was known as the Xochiayot, which means the flower war, in which the the, the ostensible reason was to gain prisoners from the other side. Uh, we are not sure, uh, but it is it has long been assumed, thanks to the writings of the 16th century friars, that these individuals were destined for sacrifice. We don't know for sure, uh, because we have not, we, we just don't have the kinds of records that would tell us uh, that, uh, uh, you know, Kuatikutli from Tlaxcala ended up on the sacrificial stone uh, in Mexico City. We we just don't have those kinds of records. Uh, what we do know is that prisoners were taken. Uh, we do know that those prisoners were brought back to Mexica land, but back to the central basin. And we know that they were became members of households of the warriors who had captured them. We also know that there are captured warriors who are sacrificial victims. We don't have the absolute connection except for the 16th century friars telling us that. So we don't have much reason to doubt it, but at the same time, we don't have solid confirmation. And I would add that for the question of that, because you know, if you were, so for the lack of a better word, a citizen of Tetzcoco or any other cities under the Aztec, you were pretty much safe. You weren't going to be sacrificed, right? They weren't going to come knock on the door. Okay, we need a sacrifice to official victims. Ab- we're going to choose you next. Ab- absolutely not. Uh, however, you could be captured by the Tlaxcalans or by the uh, Cholulteca uh, or uh, another group uh, and uh, potentially uh, be executed in their land so no for for 19 for for everyone it was a peaceful world in the sense that uh no one was coming around to to bother you uh but there were very clear public executions going on uh around the calendar depending upon the needs of the rituals. And something you talked about extensively as well is merchants that tra- travel as, to make trades for slaves yes. and for, for sacri- sacrificial purposes for a living yeah. as well. So let's talk a little bit about what the merchants that travel around. And as you mentioned, taking prisoners outside, where the merchants safe from becoming prisoners themselves, or was it a very dangerous job considering that you could per- perhaps be caught as a prisoner yourself, or where you did you have political immunity as a merchant? Right. The the merchants are are very important, in particular in the 
rituals of the 15th month of Ponquetzalistli, uh, because by the end of the Mexica Empire, by the period immediately uh, prior to the arrival of the Spaniards, uh, the, the, the merchants had been lifted up uh, socially and politically uh, to a position almost equal to the warriors. Uh, and they became central figures in uh, the celebrations of the 15th month. Uh, there were several kinds of merchants uh, in the Mexica world, not unlike uh, in in modern in the modern world. Uh, you have your retail merchant, the guy who has a shop, uh, uh, buys and sells goods uh, for the public. And then you have wholesale merchants, merchants who uh, get material from manufacturers and then they sell it to the small shopkeepers. Uh, the the types of merchants that we're addressing here were those wholesale merchants, uh, merchants who would who would fund expeditions uh, to far off places in order to get rare goods, uh, feathers, gemstones, uh, dye stuff, uh, exotic foods, animals, all of the luxury items in general, and and some construct and some basic materials, and so they would be merchants who would go out. Uh, hundreds of miles away uh, to acquire goods for sale back in uh, Tenochtitlan. The merchants were by and large given immunity by most of the nations uh, of what is now central Mexico for the simple reason that they were all interdependent. Uh, All of the different native nations needed trade in order to not just survive, but certainly to excel, uh, because it was the merchants who were uh, especially specializing uh, in rare uh, and costly goods. So they they were a, a needed resource uh, within the society. And so they were given a, a general political immunity, if you will, uh, from warfare and whatnot. But as a result, the merchants were also used as spies and diplomats. Uh, they would come back uh, to Tenochtitlan and tell uh, the the leadership what was going on out in distant provinces. So they were a wonderful information gathering network. Uh, and so they were spies, but they were also diplomats. They would help to negotiate uh, between uh, potentially warring nations uh, to assure that there were no misunderstandings. So they had a very special role uh, within Mexica society because in many ways they were as important as the military uh, in terms of expanding the empire and assuring that the empire had the precious goods that it wanted for the benefit of its internal economy. Hmm. And let's talk about another thing that you talked about as well is during the sacrificial ritual is the bathing before. But before we, do, I, I want to go back a little bit before the bathing because I have another, another question to add to that because, you know, there were, as far as I understand it, I'm, re- I'm not sure if even doesn't remember where I read this, but before you become sacrificed, some of the victims would become 
the god themselves, they, they would walk around as gods, and people would genuinely So how so? How does uh, how did that work in when you became a god and then you were after how long time did this go on for that you became a god? Yes, uh, there in, in for the celebrations of of different months, uh, there were different rituals in which society engaged. In several of them, uh, uh, an individual who had been chosen for execution. Uh, was dressed in the regalia of a specific deity uh, and lived a month or three months or four months uh, as that deity. Uh, they wore the the raiment of the deity. They wore the, the headdress and all of the other uh, accoutrements of the deity. And they were considered an embodiment of the deity for all intents and purposes they were the deity uh the this is called ishiptla in, in nahuatl uh a, a dear friend of mine has has translated that uh as the local embodiment of a deity uh this is molly bassett who's done just superb work uh on 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 the ishiptla but there are many different kinds of Ishipla, that is a local embodiment of the deity. And in fact, in the rituals of Panquetzalistli, the amaranth doe figure, which plays an important role in the running ceremony, is also an Ishipla. It is a local embodiment of Huitzilopochtli. So it is imbued with all of the powers of the deity, uh in that ceremony so there is this concept of ishiptla wherein an individual is a local embodiment uh, a representative if you will of the deity that they are dressed up like and certainly in the celebrations of Panquetzalisli, in addition to the amaranth doe image there is evidence that some of the individuals chosen for execution wear different parts of the garb of Huitzilopochtli in that they are being associated with the deity prior to their execution. Did, did the victim itself believe that it was, oh, I am the god, and did it just go along with it for the sake of it? Who knows? We don't have any interviews with them. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't make sense like, oh, I'm, since I'm the god, shouldn't you let me go? That's what I would have done. If I became god, I would still avoid getting sacrificed. I'm a god, you should let me go, be free. Not by sacrificial yes, I, means, but I wouldn't mean go out to out in the free world. I'd let me wander and see the world. It uh, Again, what we're dealing with is, is a completely different uh, mentality and worldview. Uh, and so individuals obviously reacted uh, to much of this quite differently than than you and I would, mm -hmm. given that they had been prepared since childhood, uh, indoctrinated, if you will, in this belief system. So that I can't tell you that that lies beyond my powers uh, as a historian. Sorry, <laughs> that's fine. But I, I mentioned before we got into the day 
becoming a deity, but as well bathing was of course important yes. to the sacrificial ritual as well. So let's talk about the bathing before the ritual. Right. Right. One of one of the unique features of uh, the Panketsalisli rituals is that the individuals who were chosen for execution were ritually bathed uh, as part of the preparation for the their execution. Uh, and they were taken to a very special spot uh, south of Mexico City near uh, what is now Huitzilopochtli. Uh, uh, Churubusco, sorry. Uh, it was known as Huitzilopochtli. It was known as the place of Huitzilopochtli. Uh, and they were ritually bathed. Uh, and minor sacrifices uh, were done at that time. Uh, the bathers would prick their fingers. Uh, they would have small amounts of blood let out of their ears, uh, earlobes. Uh, there were other small rituals that went on during the bathing. The bathing was a necessary precursor to them taking on part of the image of the deity. Uh, and so the 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 bathing, the altia, was was an important precursor to the later events. What we also recognize is that there was a second type of bathing, uh, which is to be ritually bathed with sand, uh, oh, the oh. shalakia. Uh, and in fact, the area in front of the central pyramid in uh, the central temple in Tenochtitlan was a a, a sandy area, uh, and we believe that there was an additional sand bathing uh, that occurred at that point prior uh, to the the final execution. So the, it, the while the water bathing is is clear, uh, the sand bathing is something that we're still wrestling with. Hmm. Something that I found. Kind of surprising and a little bit gross as well is that after uh, before and again I'm sorry I'm getting ahead of myself we talked about we talked a little bit about this and then talked about the sacrifice itself before we go into the aftermath of the sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Well, the 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 radical cardiectomy. Uh, yes, the the execution uh, occurs on the top of the great temple. Uh, there are five priests involved. Uh, four of the priests grab the arms and legs of the person being executed. Uh, the fifth priest has a flint knife. Uh, the, the person being executed is flexed over a stone, which means their chest is raised and their arms and legs pulled down. Uh, as best we know now, uh, as a result of some some scientific ex, uh, study, is that the knife was inserted under uh, the rib cage uh, at the diaphragm and then deftly uh, thrust up, cutting the major arteries and veins, so that the art the heart uh, was extracted uh, very quickly. Uh, not according to the to the friars' accounts, while it was still beating. Uh, so that's that's the process. It's rather gross, but you know, ritual disembowelment is not not, not funny. Pretty. <laughs> so, of course, another thing that's kind of gross is what they did with the body and the heart afterwards, because cannibalism, of course, was as well a part of 
the sacrificial ritual. Uh, yes. Uh, again, we have to go back and check our sources. Uh, the degree to which uh, human flesh was consumed is open to a great deal of speculation, uh, if any of it were consumed at all. And there are a lot of people who who believe that that human flesh was not consumed. Uh, from the accounts that I have worked with, uh, it is my understanding that there might be small parts uh, of human flesh which were consumed uh, by the individual who was the sponsor uh, of the individual who was executed, uh, by the warrior who had provided the sacrificial victim, or by the merchant who had provided the the candidate for execution. Uh, so I. It, it it seems to me that this is most logical, uh, most reasonable in the context. Uh, I have never believed that uh, human flesh was uh, a source of nutrition among the Mexica. It Adelation, was not. Adelicacy. It was, it was not. Uh, if it was consumed at all, uh, it would have been uh, a very small piece, generally from the thigh or buttocks uh, that was that was that was consumed with 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 corn. I don't know if buttocks would be my first choice, but hey, whatever <laughs> you prefer. <clears throat> yes, well, uh, all I know is what I read in the sources. And again, uh, you know, going back to that question that you first asked me, we have to be very careful with these sources. Uh, it's quite possible that there was no consumption of human flesh at all, uh, because the friars uh, misunderstood what was going on, and it was the most abominable thing that they could think of, and so they ascribed it to the Mexica. So the jury is actually still out on that. So, of course, another thing I wanted to talk about as well is alcohol that you write about in the book, which I found interesting. That it wasn't widely distributed as in the, as in the European world, but if, even if you were caught drinking alcohol, it was just for certain few people. So if you were caught, it was a very severe punishment if you were caught drinking in secret. So, yes. So, so they're talking about the distribution of alcohol in the Mexican society. Well, the, right. The, there was not much uh, alcohol consumption among the Mexica uh, for a couple of reasons. One, there there wasn't much produced. Uh, the, 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 the most widely produced form of alcohol was uh was a beer which is made from the syrup uh, of the maguey plant uh which in modern day uh, mexico we know as pulque uh there it was known as nautle or or nectar uh and this is a, a very sweet uh nectar which comes out of the head of the maguey uh and it is allowed to naturally ferment and it's it's pretty low in alcohol uh i i think most of it in Mexico these days runs, I think, around three or four percent alcohol. Uh, they did not have distillation, uh, and so uh, alcohol content was limited by the uh, yeast which was floating in the air, which did not provide much, uh, much of a kick. Nonetheless, alcohol was uh, restricted generally to ritual purposes. Uh, it was drunk at specific religious ceremonies. Individuals who were over 65 
in in essence, individuals who were no longer central uh, to the productivity of the nation were allowed greater leniency uh, in imbibing alcoholic beverages. Uh, but young people uh, in the prime of life uh, who were the the heart of the of the society were extremely uh, envied against uh, consumption of alcohol. Now, again, it's possible that some of this comes from the friars uh, who had uh, a fear uh, of drunkenness as part of Christian teachings. Uh, but it does seem that there is something within the Mexica culture which also looked askance on individuals uh, who were inebriated because they were no longer in touch with their senses. They were no longer in touch with with the life that was going on around them. Hmm. Now, that's a, there's a, and something I want to talk about as well before we talk about the conquistadors is that there was another way to gain sacrificial victims as well, and that is the infamous ball game that they had playing. I don't remember what it's called out of my head, but they did the loser of the team and, and of course, did, I believe, got sacrificed for, to mm. the gods. Not always. Not always. Uh, many, many times we know the ball game was played and it was played. Uh, it was played for ritual divination, that is to to try and decide who would ultimately win a battle. Uh, it was used in a lot of uh, other ritual ceremonies uh, in which there was no execution. It was just a game. Uh, it's called uh, uh, Tlachtli in Nahuatl. The ball game is Tlachtli. Uh, and the ball court is Tlachko. Uh, and it was, uh, it again, th- this game in in various different forms was widespread throughout what we call Mesoamerica. Uh, that's everything from Central America up into the American uh, Southwest. Uh, the Maya played a very, very similar game, uh, and there are still pl- games being played in Western Mexico, uh, which have a, a great uh, similarity uh, to Tlachli. Uh, out there, they call it Ulama. So the the ball game was was very important. It was uh, it was it was also a way of trying to understand the the world and creativity. In that the Mexica saw the world as being pulled between opposing forces, uh, and they saw that the ball game in many ways was a working out of opposing forces of, of two teams and so it was also it, it 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 aided them in understanding uh the world in which they lived again not always were the losers sacrificed that did happen we believe from time to time but not always hmm. so of course but i do believe people still play this game today right certain yeah. part of mexico hopefully minus the sacrifices yeah, I can only yeah. hope. No, the Spaniards were pretty effective at getting rid of ritual uh, executions early on, which they then, of course, replaced with their own ritual executions. I do believe we covered some of this, but I want to talk a little bit about this at the end of the episode as well, because of course the Mexico and Andrew Tess 
uh, incoming to the World of Mexico. And what was their reaction? Did they, do we know if they witnessed sacrifice themselves when they entered Texcoco or did, or how did what? Of course, their oh, yeah. reaction to and the abolition of the Aztec religion. Oh yes, the the conquistadores were 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 very aware uh, that these executions were going on. Uh, the you have to remember that the Cortez expedition spent uh, what some six months in Mexico City uh, before uh, being kicked out on what the Spaniards called the Noche Triste. So they saw the 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 different rituals and ceremonies that went on during the period of time that they were resident uh, in Tenochtitlan. They had seen uh, ritual executions uh, in some of the other states uh, that they that they passed through: uh, Tlaxcala, Cholula, Huehuetzingo, uh, and others. So, no, they were they were very aware of of the practice uh, of ritual execution, and that's where the the deep an- antipathy to it comes is that the conquistadors see it and they they associate it with the with the religious activity and uh they think it's an abomination so that that's how it gets colored very very quickly hmm. um so i, I had something on my head right now but uh do, do people still believe in yeah something i want to end with of course is that i didn't believe that smith had been abused today but there is this myth going on that the Aztecs thought they were gods entering the city that and that there was this on the right time of when the snake, I think, I don't remember exactly how the story goes, but that snake that came back to destroy the world, their world or something like that. I don't remember the story on the top of my head, but yep. I do believe this agenda has been debunked pretty much, but they did not yep. believe that they were gods and then no. that the snake came. That was added later, right? Yep, yep. Uh, it's it's not a snake. It's Quetzalcoatl, uh, the plumed serpent, uh, and all of that is a bunch of hooey uh, that was uh, created by by some of these friars and other Spaniards uh, in the decade following the conquest. It has its roots in in native belief systems and in native mythology, uh, but which was then uh, latched on by the Spaniards. Uh, and exploited for their own benefits. Uh, no, when the when the Europeans arrived, the native peoples recognized them as being humans. Uh, they just had no idea where they came from. Uh, they were odd in the sense that they had animals that they'd never seen before, uh, and that they had clothing that was quite strange, and they had metal tools. Uh, which, by and large, the native peoples of of central Mexico did not have. They had copper and they had some early forms of of bronze, uh, but they did not have uh, iron and steel. So that was a that was a surprise. But that's about it. I mean, it was a surprise. They knew they were people. They were talking to them. They negotiated with them, uh, and they they had they had battles. But yeah, no 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 deities. Involved. And as, I do believe we spoke a little about this in our episode on the conquistadores as well. But that the Aztec almost won over the Spaniards as well, and the Noche Triste, because even though they had guns and superior weapons, they weren't necessarily very reliable. So the Aztecs almost won against 
this, but conquistadors, if I know this correctly. The, yeah, no, the Mexica, when you're talking about actual battle, the Mexica could have defeated uh, the small number of Spaniards. Uh, they, when when they drove them out of Tenochtitlan, they they opted not to murder them, but to just kick them out and get the hell out of here and don't darken our door again. Uh, the key to success was that the Spaniards were not alone. They had already created alliances uh, with the Tlaxcalans, uh, who were, uh, you know, a significant presence. And in fact, even in, in Tenochtitlan before and during the Noche Triste, it was not just the Spaniards that were getting kicked out. It was the Tlaxcaltecans also. Uh, and there were, we you know, numbers are, are, are really tough uh, to be accurate, but probably... Somewhere in the neighborhood of several thousand plush colon forces were with the Spaniards in Mexico City, Tenochtitlan. Uh, so it it wasn't it wasn't so easy to say that the the Mexica could have killed all the Spaniards. Yeah, but you still have the Tlash Collins. Mm. Uh and it's not at all clear that that who would have won that battle. Mm. I think we know the round it up there. I hope that you draw that clear, bit clearer idea of how the Aztec religion actually worked. Thank you so much for coming on. And before you go, do you have anything you want to promote? And where can people buy your book if they should be interested? Do you have any social media if people have any questions before before you go that you want me to add to the description? Sure, go ahead and buy the fifteenth month. It's uh, I I had a lot of fun writing it, and I think it's. Uh, I wrote it in a way that individuals who were not specialists in the field could still understand uh, the main points. Uh, I the 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 book that I had finished right before that uh, was the first letter from New Spain, in which I talk about all of the different members of the Cortez expedition. So, uh, in those two books, you get to see both sides uh, of of the world. Uh, at the time of the conquest, you get to understand a little bit about the uh, Mexica religion with the 15th month, and you get to understand about who were the members uh, of the Cortez expedition uh, when it landed in Veracruz back in 1519. So uh, in for me, at least, those are, are good companion pieces uh, in that they talk about both sides uh, right immediately prior to the confrontation. Thank you again so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure yeah. to have you on. And uh, we, my name is Alan. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts these days. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing a review of us. That would help us out a lot. If you are on Spotify, write us five stars. And please, if you are on YouTube, please like, share, and subscribe, and leave a comment what you thought about this episode. Thank you so much for coming on. Please pleasure. like, share, and subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 